0: Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by The Gimp. Now that guy knows at the party. Let's dim the lights and start the show.
1: Welcome everybody to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Classitel. Give us a call. Our information could change your life. Welcome everyone to The Pestle.
2: Uh, I'm Wes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you forgot, and I am Todd. <laughs> like, that was a hard one. I, it's,
1: it's really early for me. This is like 10 a.m., uh, which for other people is the equivalent of like 4 a.m., I think. <laughs> so, Oh, man, we are the Pestle. We are a podcast for filmmaking um, and all creative types, I think, uh, to sit and pick apart films, discuss why they work, how they work, maybe maybe get a little bit better at the, the filmmaking process. We do that from the standpoint of being actors, creators, filmmakers. Um, And today we have two musicians um, with us. Uh, The the other is uh, an actor. He's a playwright. Uh, He's a guitarist, a really badass guitarist. Uh, The way I hear, uh, he's one of the best guitarists uh, some people have ever met. And so uh, and and also, you know, just a, a great singer songwriter, man, Scott. The Garrett Graham, welcome to the show, buddy.
3: Hey, hey. thanks for having me,
1: dude. You've been cranking lately. What, what, what do you got going on, man? You're an engineer right now. You've been doing a lot of sound engineering. Um, have I left anything off the the illustrious Scott Garrett Graham list of I
3: mean, accomplishments? Uh, an athlete, a scholar. <laughs> and... uh no that's that's mostly it (laughs) um yeah I've been working mostly at the studio uh or recording studio for like the last couple years and um yeah just been kind of hiding out and uh, making records and learning how to engineer and kind of learning on the fly as I go it's been it's been a blast it's been really fun
2: can you tell that story a little bit can you just really quickly of like of like where you were before Orb, how you got to the position that you're at at Orb. I think it's just like a pretty awesome, pretty awesome story.
3: Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's all very serendipitous, but uh yeah, for the last five years, I had uh, kind of transitioned to a uh, touring guitarist and um, was staying pretty busy, literally all, all the way up until like 2020, where I had uh, moved out to LA to continue that process. And, you know, things were going well. I was actually on a a UK tour um, opening up for stereophonics in arenas to 20,000 people a night. It was absolutely wild. And then, literally, March 2020, March 12th, 2020, the border started shutting down because of COVID. And it was like, oh, we got to get the hell out of here <laughs> and uh, ran back home. And that was kind of like the end of my touring career, as far as I knew. So I decided to leave LA because LA sucks and came back to <laughs> Austin and kind of hanging out trying to figure out my next move and hit up my friend matt nebesky who owns orb recording studios out in austin kind of just saying that hey i'm back in austin i'm trying to reroute if you ever need a session guitarist or hell even an engineer you know i'm available i'm around and kind of you know ready to work and he he texts me like 30 minutes later he's like dude can i call you in like 45 minutes i was like sure and he calls me and he's like man, your text was like crazy timing because I just had a meeting with all our our engineers at ORB saying that we're going to need more engineers because we're going to get really swamped and we don't like our head engineer was actually transitioning out of not working at the studio. So he's like, can you come tomorrow? And I was like, "Uh, all right, sure. So I showed up the next day and was like, basically ushered in as like a sort of intern assistant shadowing, trying to learn all the stuff, which in any other circumstance, I probably wouldn't have made the cut because I was actually way greener than I needed to be. (laughs) Because, you know, running a board and running all the outboard stuff is it's a lot. And I didn't really know how to do that. (laughs) And uh, so yeah, I was just lucky enough to just show up for like three months and just watch and learn and watch a thousand YouTube videos at home afterwards and kind of just learned how to do it. Um, and then quick, slowly started taking my own sessions, like small little vocal sessions and then bigger sessions and sort of just being thrown out to the, you know, thrown out in the fire, um, and had to figure it out. And within a year I took over as studio manager, booking manager. And yeah, now I'm still here after about, I don't know, 10 months so yeah it's it's been it's been a freaking whirlwind and it's it's awesome but it's a lot
1: that's amazing that's awesome god yeah it's i think one of the as a artist trying to survive in this you know very difficult landscape of being an artist right because we're at an interesting time in society where there's a lot more freedom than you know we used to have even 20 years ago uh, a lot more opportunity to make a living doing something that you love, such as art. And I think one of the, the earliest lessons that I, I figured out uh, was how important it is to just have your team, have a team of people that believes in you, that you stay in contact with, and just keep creating with them. Um, and I think the, the hardest lesson um, I probably will never learn uh, is being willing to reach out and say, hey, here I am. Whoa. That's such a cool story because yeah, that's especially at the start of COVID. No one knows what's going to happen, you know, next. And to just suddenly have an opportunity like that because you decided, Hey, uh, let me just reach out to my people, my team of, uh, men and women that have always been around and like, you never know. And I love that little phrase because you really don't, but it is so important. I feel like y'all are part of my team of, uh, people that I've tried to support at every opportunity, you know, that y'all give me. And try to let y'all support me when I kick my ego to the side, like, or at least my, uh, my low self esteem, you know, to be like, Hey, I need help. And so, man, that's, that's, wow. That's really, has that been like true for y'all in terms of uh, just keeping your arms open to, you know, all the the people who are there for you and support you and uh, just trying to create that sense of community with, other artists that may not even overlap in the kind of art that you do.
3: Yeah. I mean, that's, that was one of the main reasons I was so quick to move back to Austin because, I mean, I've tried LA twice now and every time I've ever moved there, it's always just felt the same to me. Like there's Mm -hmm. just, there's no, like you said, there's no community or I hadn't been able to find like a real true community of people that are willing to kind of help each other and um, grow and stuff. And I always find that way more so here in Austin and specifically definitely here at orb. Like everyone's very, very cool. Very like share ideas. They share tips. They're sharing bands. It's just like, yeah, it's very communal here and yeah, it just really helps. It just, you know, helps your kind of, you know, your self-esteem, your, your growth. It's just, yeah, you you just work better when you're working with other people for sure. So
2: I heard an interesting comparison between LA and New York. And I think it was like, L.A., if you if you get a flat tire in L.A., a hundred people will drive by and they'll say, oh, oh, man, that sucks. That poor guy, he's got a flat tire. And everyone will just drive by. You get a flat tire in New York, one dude will stop and he'll curse at you the entire time he's helping you change his tire about how you don't know how to change a tire. <laughs> it's like, so he's helping you, but he's giving you what for while he's doing it. Uh, but, uh, and I don't know how true that is, but it just felt kind of funny when I heard that, but no, that's, that's an awesome story, Scott. And I'm glad you told, I, like I wanted you to tell it because we talk a lot on this podcast about making things happen for yourself and how a, like a lot of like great filmmakers and I keep I don't know why lately I've been going back to Tarantino will just make it happen right like Reservoir Dogs he just made that happen you know and your situation you kind of made it happen you know Um, you should I remember because when I guess you got COVID or something I'm not sure but you were crashing at my house no it was Matt that got COVID Right. Yeah. Uh, his brother got COVID. And so, um, he was crashing in my house, in my studio, in my backyard. And I remember, you know, having these conversations of you, you know, going to orb and, you know, being nervous and all that stuff. And we talked about it and, and you were, you're just like, I'm just going to show up every day. I'm just going to be there and be present. And, you know, I've heard so many stories in music about like these, these huge, huge, you know, engineers who've done these massive records who they got their break by just being there at the right time, right? Like so-and-so didn't show up. So they needed somebody to run the session, boom. And so this, this guy gets to, you know, record with Peter Gabriel or something like that. And, you know, things like that happen all the time. And I was like, well, why couldn't that happen to you? You know, you're in a million dollar studio, multi million dollar studio, like the, you know, people like Justin Bieber and, and, and more record there and stuff. So why not? And so to, to see you like, you know, get that opportunity and take advantage of it by putting yourself in that situation is pretty awesome. And, and, and I love that. Cause it's like, I've known you for a long time. And I can't imagine you being anywhere else than in a studio. Like that's the kind of, the kind of vibe that, that like, you know, not just vibe, but that, that's like who you are. I can't imagine you being a barista or working in a, in a, a, a an office for the rest of your life. That's for sure.
3: I mean, it it definitely crossed my mind uh, when I moved back and I was kind of like, well, I don't know what to do now. I kind of put all my chips in at touring because it was like, you know, I had some knowledge of engineering and the studio stuff. And I definitely like always gravitate towards the studio. Like that's where I feel the most creative and probably the most comfortable. Live is fun, obviously, because it's a whole different thing. But, uh, you know, I'm pushing 40 and it's like, (laughs) how long am I going to tour? And like, how long is that? you know, feasible. Like, so just knowing like, how's that going to work? And like, you know, you you tour for a month, two months, maybe, and then you're off for like three months and then you have to go do your day job or whatever. And just like at the time in LA, I was like building like cases for film equipment or something. It was a terrible job, but then I'd go off on tour for six weeks, come back for three months. You know, it's just this back and forth thing that was just like, you know, not going to work in the long run. So yeah, being able to be in the studio working, even though it's not always fun work. Like today I was picking up garbage and putting it in a dumpster because someone left a bunch of boxes outside. It's just like, you know, it's stuff you have to deal with as a manager, but it's like, at least I'm like in the industry working like, and actually making a living and supporting myself and not having to make some asshole coffee. (laughs) Cool. So
2: yeah,
3: it's
1: great. Hold on. drinking my coffee
2: (laughs) what are we covering today wes yeah so
1: so speaking of like community and the importance of having a community we are looking at monty python and the holy grail it took me ages before i realized monty python was a collective (laughs) and was a senseless thing i kept Growing up as a kid, I always wondered, who the hell is Monty Python? Like, why is his name never in the credits? Yeah. <laughs> I always thought that was the
3: name of the movie. It's like, oh, have you seen Monty Python? They're like, oh, yeah, with the like the knights. I'm like, yeah, it's like <laughs> a lot of
2: them. But, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, so today so today we're covering Monty Python, Python and the Holy Grail. If you haven't seen it, it 1975, is that when it came out? Something like that. If you haven't seen it, please pause this episode. Go watch it. It's streaming on Netflix uh, because we're going to, man, we're just going to spoil everything. We're going to ruin the movie for you if you haven't seen it. Every punchline is about to be spoken aloud.
1: (laughs) Uh, We'll look at a a bunch of things, probably at least a few. A lot of the humor, of course. We'll talk about some of the uh, absurdism as well as dry humor uh, that they employ to make one chuckle, uh, as well as looking at a comedy period piece um, and some of the ways that they approach that and other such stuff and things and stuff.
2: And a quick synopsis of the film, if you can if you can write one in a sentence, King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table embark on a surreal low budget search for the Holy Grail, encountering many very silly obstacles. It's directed by Terry Gillum and Terry Jones. It's written and performed by Graham Chapman and John Cleese and Eric Idle and Terry Gillum. And Terry Jones and Michael Palin. And it's cinematography by Terry Bedford.
0: Old woman! Man! Man, sorry. What night lives in that castle over there? I'm 37. Uh, what? I'm 37. I'm not old. Well, I can't just call you man, you could say Dennis. I didn't know you were called Dennis. Well, you didn't bother to find out, did you? I did say sorry about the old woman, but from behind, you looked... What oh, I, I object to is that you automatically treat me like an inferior. Well, I am king. Oh, king, eh? Very nice. And how would you get that, eh? By exploiting the workers. By hanging on to outdated imperialist dogma which perpetuates the economic and social differences in our society. If there's ever going to be any progress... Dennis, we've there's got... some lovely filth down here. Oh! How'd you do? How do you do, good lady? I am Arthur, King of the Britons. Whose castle is that? King of the who? The Britons. Who are the Britons? Well, we all are. We are all Britons. And I am your king. I didn't know we had a king. I thought we were an autonomous collective. You're fooling yourself. We're living in a dictatorship, a self-perpetuating autocracy in which the working classes Oh, there you go, bringing class into it again. That's what it's all about. If only people would... Please, please, good people. I am in haste. Who lives in that castle? No-one lives there. Then who is your lord? We don't have a lord. What? I told you, we're an anarcho-syndicalist commune. We take it in turns to act as a sort of executive officer for the week. Yes. But all the decisions of that officer have to be ratified at a special bi-weekly meeting. Yes, I see. By a simple majority in the case of purely internal affairs. Be quiet! But by a two-thirds majority in the case of more major... Be quiet! I order you to be quiet! All oh, right, who does he think he is? I'm your king. Well, I didn't vote for you. You don't vote for kings. Well, how'd you become king, then? The Lady of the Lake, her arm clad in the purest shimmering Samite, held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I'm your king. Listen, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. Be quiet. Oh, but You can't expect to wield supreme executive power just because some watery tart threw a sword at you. Shut up. Oh, but if I went round saying I was an emperor... Just because some moistened bint had lobbed a scimitar at me, they put me away. Shut up, will you? Shut up. Ah, now we see the violence inherent in the system. Shut up. Come and see the violence inherent in the system. Help, help. I'm being repressed. (laughs) So,
1: oh, man, this whole film is just filled with these delightful little moments. Um, I have no idea where to begin. What? I, I think we start with Scott. I, I don't know why, but whenever I was thinking about Monty Python, I was like, this is just a Scott movie. I don't know why.
3: <laughs> it's just, I do. It's just perfect, man. Um, I mean, just a quick backstory for me. Like, I saw this when I was, I think I was like 10 or 11. It's pretty young. I don't even know how I saw it. It was back when I was living in Kingwood. My brother Matt and I were watching it. And it's I think it's literally the first movie I saw that had me like rolling around on the floor laughing hysterically. I can't think of another movie that like just made me laugh so hard to where I was crying, even as like a 10 year old. Like I probably didn't get most of the jokes. I didn't understand any of that last scene. But uh, specifically, it was and of course, it's like the dumbest scene. (laughs) It might might be right after that, but it's where the uh, the monks are doing the. (laughs) yo no no and they just <laughs> themselves in the head and they just walk around and keep hitting themselves I just thought that was the funniest thing just how absurd it was but um yeah i I just I just love this movie so much it's just it's just a, like a testament of like and I don't know like how big the budget was I mean you probably already know and you'll probably say it or
1: something but like zero idea
3: it couldn't have been that much watching it like I watched it again last night and still was just laughing hysterically almost the whole time but like to me it's like such a testament of being able to work around your budget and just really focusing on the writing because like i mean that's what they are like they all they all wrote the stuff too and also were great actors and it just like how they can like write themselves out of not having a huge budget (laughs) i guess i don't know if that makes sense but like yeah i don't know man i i just think they're it's just a perfect movie yeah
1: love it Todd, what do you think, man, about Monty Python?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, uh, so what I would say for me is that Monty Python is the kind of movie that's best watched with your friends. Because there there were plenty of times I was laughing. And I was mostly laughing because I'm older and I've seen a lot of, you know, like these like serious old british films and i love that we went from braveheart to this <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> like we did braveheart last week by the way scott uh. which i just adore or maybe that was a week before last and it's such a great juxtaposition and a great like identifying of all the expectations of a medieval you know of medieval like british anything any kind of movie right the bring out your dad, bring, you know, and and like the, like the scene we just showed, they're just piling mud on top of mud for some particular because they're in a field and there's mud in the field, right? And that's probably what they did in the in the medieval times is they sold mud. I don't know, you know, but like it's just so random. And the the knights that say me, um, it just uh, so. Because there's got to be a purpose for every night, right? They've got to have a name and then and, and whatever. Mm. So I love I love that identification of like, like we're gonna call out all the all the BS, but it's if I could have watched it with you guys, I would have been rolling, you know, <laughs> instead of you know by myself in my living room, you know, uh, late at night alone, which is is fine and it was fun and everything, but like I know for a fact that like watching it with the other people who got it would may have made it that much better and this is so old like this was made you know decades ago so for it to still hold up and and be funny and be poignant at the same time but and entertaining and totally weird and crazy i mean the credits are like five minutes in the beginning it's like five minutes of stupid credits and it's so annoying but that's the point right that's the point point. and then uh I, things like it's saying intermission 10 minutes before the movie's <laughs> over Fantastic. You're thinking, I can only imagine seeing that in the theater and it's, you know, an hour and 20 minutes in and it says intermission. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be here forever. You know, it's not like you're scrubbing through in, in Netflix and you know, oh, we got 10 minutes left. So there's a, there's a lot of like really amazing things that, that I think that they did first. And I, and I like your point Scott about, oh, we've got, you know, 150 K or whatever it is, maybe less What are we going to do with that? Okay, well, we're going to put everybody in the same outfits. They're never going to change their outfits. You know, so and so you're going to die at this point. You're going to die at this point. So we don't need to see you anymore or whatever. You're going to play this role and that role and that role. And we're going to we're going to travel so that we don't we're not in one place, but it's all outside mostly except for like a couple of indoor indoor moments and things like the monster being a rabbit. You know, of course. Like, why not? It's cheap. You can buy a rabbit for 15 bucks and then, you know, whatever. See, I think probably the fireworks are probably the most expensive part of the entire shoot with the, the guy on the mountain with the fireworks and stuff and explosions. Uh, so anyway, I, I thought it was uh, really smart in that regard. And, and definitely if you're going to watch it and you haven't yet, you should watch it with friends uh, and and preferably goofy friends that get it. That's you know?
1: a, That's a really good point. I feel like for me the 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 hard thing about comedy uh films is you kind of get laughed out around halfway in and you're still amused even and it takes this level of writing to kind of keep the humor alive and fresh and and you know continuing but being there with friends, like it's so you could laugh for hours with friends and you don't really ever get tired of, of the jokes um, and ribbing each other or whatever. And so, yeah, I think you're right. Like being in the room with friends, watching this keeps it fresh, you know, a 100 percent the entire way through and with any comedy, uh, let alone something of this caliber. And yeah, I mean, same similar to you, Scott, like I saw this as a kid. I was probably a little, little younger. I being the youngest in my family, I was always introduced to stuff above my pay grade because no one wants to watch stuff on my level. Right. Everyone wants like, eh, everyone else can get this. Like your big brothers and big sister can all appreciate something else. And so, yeah, you're seven, but you're going to be watching stuff for a 12 year old because you know, suck it up buttercup. And, and so watching this as a, yeah, like seven year old, like I 100% got very little of it, but the stuff that everyone was laughing about, I could pick up on and it, Definitely pulled me up into a higher, you know, mind of thinking, but even something absurd as, you know, uh, the knights who say, I was able to pick up on, okay, like even as a six year old, seven year old, that's nonsense. Like there is no such thing. And it's just, you know, balderdash. And then they transition to the knights who say, icky, icky. <laughs> and I love how when but, King Arthur goes to like honor them and their new title, he's like, the knights. Uh, who were formerly knights who say, <laughs> like, he just says, no, I'm not doing it. uh And it's just really clever, you know, writing. And I think to y'all's point about the budget and even in the, the synopsis, that's not me writing it. That's what's in IMDB. That's what they gave it. They called it like a low budget search for the Holy Grail. And if you watch the trailer, the trailer itself is mocking itself is mocking the movie and and it's talking about like uh because they they autoplay it on i m d b um and it's something along the lines of there are films that come along that change the world as we know it um that change the landscape of cinema itself you know films like taxi driver and you know whatever else and and then there are some films that are that are just okay films like you know and it's they throw some movie under the bus and then they're like and this one <laughs> uh, and, and it's just you know very not at all self indulgent um but i think they use that to their advantage because they're for a period piece and and a comedy like they have an impressive level of set design and costuming the art animations are really nice art like they they do silly stuff with it like Bare butts in people's faces and stuff, but it's actually really good looking art um, that's in the tradition of the era that they're, you know, discussing. Um, But the humor and cinematography give it this really low budget veneer while the dialogue, the acting, the wardrobe, the locations are all era appropriate. And absolutely fantastic, like the, the the accents and the word choice and the dialogues. Is specifically, what I'm talking about, like they stay pretty in tune with the era that they're they're discussing. These guys, and I think I think maybe nowadays we we understand how smart comedians are, uh, but probably in in their time, comedians weren't really you know known to be that high minded and that witty. And if you go through their humor, even in this movie but especially in some other bits. I came across uh, a couple weeks ago, this bit uh, on the Monty Python show where they're imitating Oscar, uh, Oscar Wilde. And the the humor is he and this other uh, comedian, kind of local literary witticist, are, are having back and forths in front of like a duke or a king or something. And they just kind of keep harpooning each other by saying... Um, your, your Royal Highness is an ass, you know, and they're like, that's, that's him. That's what he He told me that. <laughs> and, and that's the whole bit is how do you get out of that? If, well, that was attributed to me. How can I, you know, but underneath that whole bit is actually a really interesting feud between Oscar Wilde and his contemporaries where they were accusing him of stealing art, of stealing um, dialogue and other people's wit and re re-appropriating it for his own. Um, and so they took something really like esoteric and turned it into this base feeling, you know, level of humor. And I think they're doing that here too. And all the set design, I mean, they have these amazing boats and castles um, all the wardrobe looks amazing. Like it wouldn't be out of place. I think in a lot of, Uh, modern made, you know, I mean, you would probably do, we go a little over the top now. I don't think the stuff that we do is probably very accurate, um, to the time, but it looks better, right? It's, it's more expensive, certainly, but I don't know. Their stuff looks to me probably more accurate, uh, for, you know, whatever, 1200 BC, or ad um and, and at the end right they had this huge army they all have weapons and costuming and makeup um they all look like they just crawled out of the mud from making magpies or whatever they were doing there in that clip um and then i think they sell the era which heightens the humor right believing that these are knights and peasants and medieval villages makes the humor work that much better because so much of the humor is derived from sharp commentary of the era and the juxtapositions that they're playing with. I mean, you're having a conversation that we played between a a King and, you know, his serfs in, and it's just unexpected, right? That's kind of uh, a, a lot of the absurdist humor comes out of creating these ridiculous or bizarre uh, moments, right? And absurdism kind of relies on pushing you into unexpected territory, right and so the the night at the crossing with the with the black knight this lame knight uh fight that we come across where they're just kind of lunging and and doing really bad choreography suddenly turns really lethal really fast when a sword goes through a helmet and blood just goes everywhere you're like whoa whoa this was not heading in that direction and so just kind of upsetting the apple cart you know over and over again is a lot of the humor uh where that's coming through. And of course the way they break the fourth wall, a lot of the meta humor that they're doing, right. The subtitles and the opening are just amazing because when it starts, I haven't watched it since I was a kid. And so I 100% forgot about the opening. I thought it just began with uh, the King Arthur writing in the coconuts and all that. I forgot about the titles um, and maybe I didn't understand them at all. Uh, It probably was one of those things where everyone around me is laughing and I just do not get it. And so it opens and I'm seeing like the, the Swedish subtitles. I'm like, Oh God, wait, did I turn on a subtitle somehow? And I checked and I was like, okay, I guess they subtitled this movie or there's a weird copy that they only had access to. And so as it develops, I start understanding that they're wildly abusing, you know, the Swedish language in order to, to have these punchlines. And I, it was just killing me. And then, it start, starts to kind of get lame. You're like they're they're mildly explaining their joke, uh, and I was like, okay. I mean, that's it's still pretty, you know, funny. You know, in my mind, I'm just not laughing until suddenly they switched the, t- the title sequence to like this rave techno or a uh, uh, you know South American you know music and the the flashing lights. I was like, oh my god! And suddenly I'm laughing again. Uh, and they just find a way to not just push the humor a little too far but also uh, to reinvent it on the fly that's that's amazing but they're doing it in a way that they're breaking the fourth wall while also making these meta commentaries about the humor that they're doing in and itself like that's that's you know 3D chess I I don't know that I can write humor quite that sharp um, certainly no one's done it since and so I I, I don't think we stand a chance <laughs> then we immediately go into like should we uh, well, not immediately, but later in the film, right, we have this aside from the, I, I don't know what they were, what, what were those chased maidens, or were there, they weren't nuns, right, they were just damsels, I don't know
3: oh, The virgins in the castle, yeah. or whatever <laughs>
1: Well, they they have that little moment where she she breaks character and starts talking to camera. Should we have cut this scene? You know, we were discussing <laughs> it, and, and then they get on, they they start doing the whole get on with it and its arguments from past scenes, um, and then we start seeing the impatience from future scenes. Like, come on, what? Are you? And it's just you have to watch it twice to really understand. Like, that's what that what's going on in there, and it's just brilliant. And then, of course the the best humor for me anyway is the way they're commenting on the era itself and the tropes of the era right um the betrothals you have that son who's locked in a tower normally that's a damsel locked in a tower which you get a lot of humor out of arthur's you know bloodlust. uh oh my it's gosh. just one of the greatest <laughs> moments he just city. kills everyone yeah, on the way
2: to go save <laughs> Like, and then, but- and, and, no. and then after they, and then after he finds out, and they're coming down the stairs, he's, he just starts killing everybody again. He's like, oh, sorry. And it's so willy nilly. Like he's just
1: really, really rampant about. It. He's fast, and he's just slicing and dicing, and he's, like, and just the physical comedy of it is absolutely amazing. And then. Of course, at the beginning, the clip we played, the arguing governance with serfs you have King Arthur being mocked by an uneducated serf, debating the merits of autocracy and pointing out the flaws of Arthurian legend itself, right? And so the irony is just screaming at you about what is happening within the context of the scene, because the entire movie seems to be kind of, you know, uh, the way that Brits would put it is taking the piss out of royalty, um, because, Arthur is taking himself very seriously. He's there to to find the Holy grail and no one else will take him seriously. Uh, And that's where all the humor is really coming from um, is how unequipped he is for this journey um, and subtly undercutting him at every single turn uh, from the opening scene. Right. Because it's just unexpectedly smart for a movie containing fart jokes and make-believe horses um, and that juxtaposition of silliness with underhanded thoughtful wit. It's an incredible one-two punch. Um, It's something that you just don't see executed in comedies today. I don't know the last time we had a thoughtful because everyone who does absurdist or, or satirical commentary, you know, it's either going to be dark humor, which is fun, or it's going to be just really slapstick. I mean, we can't even do good slapstick anymore. Uh, You have the scream movies, whatever, not scream itself, but the, the ones that make fun of scream. And as opposed to even in the 80s, we had like Hot Shots uh, and Top Secret that had really fun stories in themselves, but found ways to you know make fun of certain tropes and ideas uh and so you know at the beginning of the film this film right we get into a big argument over the coconuts right um and it's just a really great way to address what we're seeing on on screen while also you know taking the piss out of uh royalty and and king arthur and his journey and um it for me it it peaks pretty early when it's uh You know, are you suggesting coconuts migrate? (laughs) That's such an interesting, fascinating, like, punchline. Because it's, we've already kind of hit, you know, the, the pay dirt with, I know what you're doing. Those are coconuts, <laughs> and and, mm-hmm. and then you kind of take it to the next level with addressing that coconuts don't even grow here. Where did you get them? <laughs> and it's just so beside the point, and nothing that Arthur wants to get into a tedious argument over. Uh, and instead, you know, it's him trying to avoid addressing it, and they just keep pushing the boundaries of well, what if it's a swallow? What if it's a swallow in it? You know, it's just an African swallow, and of course, they don't drop the swallow bit that comes. Full circle right at the end of the film. And so as much as they're creating these kind of seemingly throwaway jokes, they don't let them die. They they circulate them until the very end. And, yeah, I just love that they're constantly calling out Arthur for being ridiculous um, while seeking the grill because Arthur is not a hero. He's a joke who is ultimately arrested for being a historical, I think that's the whole idea of murdering the historian, right? Uh, Arthur himself is a historical and and is uh, uh, a myth. He's he's a fantasy, right? And having him and or one of his team accident, uh, murder uh, a famous historian, quote unquote, a famous historian um, is just a really again that's really high minded stuff coming from uh, a base level humor here. Yeah, uh, I have some other. Thoughts and ideas. But what do y'all think of just the the humor in terms of do y'all have a favorite joke or is there anything that stands out to you about the way they use humor throughout the film?
2: Well, I just wanted to say really, really quickly, because just because you're talking about Arthur. One reason why I think that this movie can pull off all that stuff is because I feel like Arthur, even as ridiculous as he is and nobody listens to him. He acts a little bit like how we feel. He's so frustrated that, like I'm frustrated as a viewer I'm like I'm like this guy is just like berating this frenchman is just berating him and he's like stop it stop it or this <laughs> this uh, you know the guy at the beginning is treating him like dirt but he's the king and he's like wait sh- shut up stop in you know and he's just trying he's just trying to go on his journey he's just trying to get through this movie right and and he's coming through all of to all of these these things that are stopping him and he's just frustrated, just trying to get through it. And so I think he exacts our feeling and emotion as the viewer of like, no, I want to see him. Cause I do want to see him find the grail, you know, like they go on a quest and I like him because he's not killing everybody for, for treating him (laughs) poorly or ignoring him. He's just like frustrated, you know? And so, and so I don't know that, that I identify with him because of that. And I, I think that that's one of the reasons it makes it work. But anyway, what were you saying, Scott?
3: just to like elaborate with what Wes was saying, um, just taking the piss out of everything. I mean, they just like set it up right from the get go about like and again, going back to the budget, like, oh, you thought this was going to be a highly budget movie. Well, nope, we can't afford horses. So we're just going to make up something and make it funny and we're going to bang coconuts and that's our horses. And it's just the whole movie is that you just learn to accept it even like the, I don't know if this is true. I feel like someone told me this, but like, even like the very end where there's that huge battle. like I think originally they were going to have a huge, like epic battle scene and they had hired all the, the people, but they like ran out of money and they didn't really know what to do. So that's how they like, they cut in all the stuff with the um, the historian to kind of lead up to just like, actually, no, 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 we're just going to arrest you. And that's how we're going to end it because we don't have any more money left. <laughs> so it's, like, it's just the way they like write in their limitations like they they play to their weakness, and it's I just I love that because like yeah no one does that anymore, and uh, yeah I just it's just brilliant. Um, but yeah, like favorite lines. I mean, still my favorite line. And this goes back to like because I used to always say this to Todd when we were in a band with this wild drummer friend of ours. But every time he would do something bizarre and weird, I would always just go like, what a strange Preston. <laughs> <laughs> Cause it's just, it's just so funny because, like, at the time in the scene, it's like where they're uh, the French guy up there just being <laughs> French and so over the top and so stereotypical of a French guy, and they're just like so perplexed the whole time trying to understand what's going on. And uh, I think it's Michael Palin just turns to Arthur and he's like, "What a strange person." <laughs> I, just, I just think that's just so hilarious and so perfect. Oh and my I, god! So, Memories. Uh, in real life, I just say that all the time when someone <laughs> does something weird. I'm just like, either say it out loud or think to myself, like, "What a strange person.
1: <laughs>
2: what a uh, brilliant
1: line. I mean, that really is, that. Uh, now that I'm thinking about it. But to just kind of comment from one character in a movie, you don't, you don't really see that in uh, fantastical things. Where someone's just, like, taken out of it for a moment and just says what's obvious. Like, that's... Yeah. That's brilliant! Damn it,
3: it's just, it's just perfect for the audience because it's like they said what we're thinking yeah. already. Like we're already like you know, 10, 15 minutes in the movie and just thinking like, what is this movie? What is going on? And then he just says bizarre thing like, yeah, what is this is strange? What is happening? We're all like, yeah, I agree with you. Oh, but damn! Yeah, they're brilliant at that, man. This their wild, bizarre humor. Yeah, yeah, I love it.
2: Todd, yeah. you have a, a favorite bit? Uh, I mean, I have a few, but. The one thing that got me was really later in the film, like at the oh, towards the very end when they I guess when they they come to um, not not the very end, but when they come right before the, the rabbit, they're all on their horses and and, he just, and King Arthur goes dismount. And then they all just—they dis- <laughs> all act like they dismount a horse. And I just love that because the first thing that we see in the movie is him on this fake horse, right? And then, like you said, Scott, we establish that's going to be the entire movie. They are all going to act like they're riding horses, even though they just have somebody clanking coconuts behind them. And then, and then, you know, an hour into the movie, hour and a half, hour and ten minutes into the movie, they're going to call that out again visually by acting like they dismount you know 10 of them act like they dismount a horse and I don't know just like these little things it's always the little things that that get me where you know there's these big swaths of of jokes and and it's hilarious like you know like I mentioned earlier was it was it um Galahad or I'm not sure runs through the the wedding and kills everyone I was rolling (laughs) I was rolling at that he's just like murdering everyone but but it's the little things like the dismount. You know, or the guy—the guy that um, the only guy that survives with King Arthur and his his visor that he's always holding up the entire yeah. movie—it's like it's such such a flaw in armor. You know what I mean? <laughs> but he can see through it fine because there's only two two little bars in front of his face. He can see through it, but he lifts it up, and the entire movie he's like this. You know those those things. You just. That's that's the good stuff is those little tiny things or the what a strange person. I laughed when I heard that again.
3: (laughs) That's so great. Like, I mean, I kept catching more because I've seen it a thousand times at this point, but I was watching it again last night. And like, yeah, it's all those little details that like you, you can pick up something new every time you watch it. Like, I mean, and I remember this when I was a kid, but like this, the bring out your dead scene, you know, they're in that like the black plague has just destroyed everyone. And they're literally piling up dead people on this cart. And he ends up killing the dude. He's like, can you just help me out? And he's like, I'm not dead yet. I want to go for a walk. And he just, he's like, can you help me I'll just do something. And he just whacks him over the head, which is just amazing writing. But like, if you watch and you look at all like the townspeople, they're just like, just a couple people are just like, literally just like rolling around in the mud. One guy's like crawling in a basket, just like nonsense shit. Like, uh, and then the, the run on joke throughout the whole movie is like the cat, like someone's always like banging a cat (laughs) against the wall or stepping on a cat and it's like, they just keep that going. And it's just these little treasures that they just keep putting throughout the movie. That is just so good. Uh, Just, I love it. I love it
0: it
2: just stacks on any any kind of stereotype you think about medieval <laughs> britain like anything and everything that's why it all works cuz like if you were to just make like some random movie about someone in california doing that in the 1800s it might not it, you know <laughs> It probably wouldn't work, but like because there's not like that stereotype of what it would be like. But there's such a stereotype because there have been so many medieval films made that it's so easy to just identify all the tropes and just beat them into the ground of like, let's take this to the extreme. You know, everyone's dying all the time. They all live in mud huts, you know, like they're all (laughs) like (laughs) just ridiculous. I love it.
3: Even like at the end of that scene, the Black Plague scene, they continue that joke on the tropes and everything because it's like Arthur walks by and he's like, oh, that must be a king. And the guy's like, how do you know? And he's like, he hasn't had shit all over him. <laughs> <Just> like, <laughs> so perfect.
1: Uh, I, love some of the, I love some of the timing bits that they have in there. Like com- great comedy is great timing. And there, there's two of these little moments that just – Kind of come out of nowhere and knock me over, which the first one was during the Camelot song. Everyone's jamming and dancing and singing and drinking and eating. Um, and then we cut to the prisoner who's clapping along and he's strung up and he's just kind of dancing while he's strung up. Oh, and I love it because not only is just, is it just a great bit that we only see him once. It's not like he's a part of anything. He's just, they do this whole big setup gag for like a four second, you know, clip. Um, but, it, but I also love that they stay true to it. They really honor like the, the moment by muffling all the other audio so that we can only kind of hear it, but we can really hear him clap and we can really just see him kind of slightly moving as much as he can move in that, that position. And it's just so perfect. Cause he's, you know, emaciated and he's you know, bare naked and uh, it looks horrible. And that's where the humor really comes from is selling it as hard as you can possibly sell it. Like this is authentic. Uh, and yeah, that kills me yeah just that quick punch uh but there's also at the end whenever they come to the uh the bridge and he are uh not the bridge but the the what are they the enchanter um and they're like well what do you call there are some who call me tim (laughs) And you're just waiting for what is he going to say? And the longer you wait, the better the payoff has to be, uh, you know, ridiculous. And to keep it that simple and unsure of himself, in a sense, uh, it's just God comedic timing delivery uh, is amazing. And I think that's the other kind of humor that I think works so well is the dry humor, Um, because dry humor relies on. On not indicating that you're telling a joke, right? You're keeping a straight face and a serious tone, um, and not letting on that uh, we all know that I'm being silly. And everyone, I think, buys into the humor here. It's very dry, and for the most part, it's not built on overacting or overselling the bit, it, with exceptions uh, that kind of em- enforce what what we're talking about here, which is like the Frenchman at the top. They're 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 in on the joke. But just that they're actually creating a joke on another character, right? He turns to his buddies who are ducked down around the war. I told them that we have a grail. Um, And it's just they're playing a gag within the within the world, not with the audience. Um, And that's why that kind of works is they're keeping a straight face. Uh, to the audience but not to the characters themselves um, and all the characters take each other pretty seriously even they arrest the, at the end like the, there's real cops you know that are uh, just doing their job right they're inspecting this murder scene and they're they're interviewing the subject and they're covering the, the deceased and they're taking it very very seriously um, and it's never where the joke you know the, the joke is for the audience not for the characters themselves and that's why dry humor works so well is because they really do honor uh the the world that they're building they're just doing it very honestly and and behind the camera they're i'm sure wetting themselves but uh on camera they're just straight faced and completely serious and 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 in it and even the uh the I love the brave Sir Robin song, right? Where they're they're dancing through the woods, and this guy is hearing of how he's going to get murdered and you know eviscerated, and um, and as it drags on, it just keeps getting worse, and like his kneecaps are going to get sliced apart, and it's just really weirdly violent, uh, but upbeat violent, um, and I just love because robin himself starts to kind of look concerned and he starts looking around um but he doesn't like scald him or anything he's like oh you know that's enough music for now (laughs) like he just kind of dismisses it and it's just brilliant to to not lean into it in the in the way that i think most you know comedians lean into it nowadays they they would point out how it's you know funny and, and silly or something and them they just how would you as a as a knight try to get out of that like uh without losing your cool um and it's for him it's just like dismissing the musician right it's just, i love that approach to to humor and writing is taking your world very seriously um and yet dragging out a joke but with seriousness you get you know again towards the end how to use the holy hand grenade right the number shall be three uh, you <laughs> shall count to three the numbers shall be three you should not count to four this will not be allowed
2: <laughs> five is right out <laughs> like, it's
1: just and like, yet
2: and yet arthur counts one two five <clears throat> yeah. one two five no three. Oh,
3: three. <laughs> i think he kind of like starts to say that before even that scene, like he'll occasionally he'll, he says five and they're like, no three, star, And he's like, Oh yeah. Three, three, three. <laughs> so when to that it's explains it all. It's sort of like making fun of him earlier in the movie. And then he can still continues to do it afterwards. Like when it's the most important.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so good. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, that's as far as, you know, the, I don't know the learnings, you know, that I, that I picked up out of this, I don't know. Is there anything else that strikes you about the film? I mean, just I again I, I really like their wardrobe I think they spend all their money on like costumes
3: <laughs> I mean it's probably already writing I mean uh, to me it feels like they were just neurotic about the writing and they were so clever at just getting it on paper but like maybe some of it can go to like editing too because like that's the, the great thing about it with like the timing of a joke or when they're Dragging something on, and you're like, oh my god, how long are they going to keep dragging this out? And right when it gets to that edge of just being like almost annoying, they put something in that's just so drastically different that like breaks you. It makes you laugh because you're like, oh, it's a break, great, but it's also hilarious because it's so just completely opposite what they were just talking about. So yeah, I mean, they're just they're so good at like knowing when when to stop or when to like to just break from that. Like the uh, like the Camelot scenes, perfect example what you were talking about earlier. Like this over the top silly song and dance where they're dancing on tables and they're doing the whole thing and you're just like what am i watching what is going on and it's and it's entertaining and fun but after a while you're kind of like where is this going and then it, yeah then it cuts and it's the guy clapping in the <laughs> reverb and it's just like "What?" it's just it's that perfect break i'm just like holy shit that's
0: hilarious.
3: And then goes back and they they're just great at that man they're, they're, they're so smart at when to when to let a joke die
1: yeah and and not (laughs) what uh yeah okay so final thoughts both you todd what do you got
2: well when i first watched it i i was i mean i haven't seen this movie man in a long time in a long time so when i when it first started it i thought oh i i hope i hope i like this because there's you know i get really annoyed at stuff like five minutes of 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 credits at the beginning of a movie, right? But the moment he comes up over that hill and he's not riding on a horse, but acting like he's riding a horse, I'm like, oh, oh yeah, that's right. That's why. <laughs> that's, okay. Now we're it, already, I'm like loving it. So I would say it's, it's kind of timeless. I mean, it's almost 40 years old. And so when you think about all the movies that like have come, that have done versions of this. You know, I don't know what, I don't know what version of this was before this. And so you think about, okay, I'm not sure what the budget is, but obviously it was low. The brilliance in the writing, the brilliance in, like you said, Scott, you know, leaning into your weaknesses, which was budget and your strengths, which is writing and timing to your point, Wes, I just feel like it, it did it, it did it better than we've been able to do it since. And, and I love the characters. I love uh, everybody playing multiple characters. um, staying in it, you know, in these moments where I'm sure there was probably ad lib stuff. There's, you know, and I can only imagine what outtakes, how great outtakes are of, (laughs) from this film. Um, I would love to see some, but, uh, the writing was fantastic. It's hilarious. It's definitely best watched with, with friends who get it. And I think that that just takes it over the top. I mean, like, you know, when you, when you talk about like Netflix is great, and streaming services are great because they can bring a lot of content into your home and when you maybe don't have the money to or the ability to go to, to a theater but there are some films that that are just so much better when consumed communally you know there's something about sitting in a theater watching something like this with everyone around you laughing that's 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 intrinsically warm and welcoming and like makes the movie better. I think that this is definitely an example of that. It's, it's, I adore it still, but I would have loved to have been in a room with you and Scott watching this. And I think we would have been rolling, you know, the entire time. So
1: Scott, final thoughts. I mean, I think it's just, it
3: again, like, I mean, we've talked about it so much, but like, yeah, it's just the writing is just like, I I'm not trying to like crap on modern movies right now, but like, to me, that's, that's really what is lacking. Personally, to me, in probably eighty-five, ninety percent of movies right now is just—I don't know if it's people are just getting stale. I don't know what—I don't know what's happening, but like, people got to get back into like writing and making like the, the blueprint of the film as best as it can be before you get a hundred million dollars to go make some dumb Marvel movie or whatever. Because like, it just shows, and it, the payoff's terrible. I mean, yeah, it looks beautiful. Maybe the CGI looks good that's arguable. But, uh, yeah, like you just, you get five, six brilliant dudes together who are hysterical and way ahead of their time and just core all these jokes and ideas and just bounce stuff around. I don't know. I just, to me, it just goes back to writing and just as a testament to like how just brilliant they were with just the ideas and being able to put that on screen. So masterfully.
1: Yeah. I think whenever I was a kid, I used to always have this thought in my head of after I watch a really good movie, I'm like, oh man, this was an incredible movie. I wonder if we're making movies this good right now, how much better they'll be in like 20 years. Uh, because we're only getting better at this, right? It's, I looked at it the same way we look at technology, right? Laptops. Oh my God. Imagine what laptops are going to look like in 20 years from now. And art just doesn't work that way. And I didn't realize at the time that You know, maybe people won't get better at making movies because there's something so much more tangible um, or intangible because it's human, uh, because we're talking about the nuance of humanity and watching something like this. I'm like, we have a blueprint, so to speak, of making something really fun and interesting, outlandish, that really just is unique how have we not improved on it or at least matched it you don't have to make it better like i get you know you can't make a better brave heart or whatever but you know you can match it you can do your best to say okay we understand some of the underlying you know philosophical things that they're they're doing to their benefit you know making the budget part of the humor and building it into the story and i i love that even the you know we keep going back to the horses but They could have had them on something. They could have put them on broomsticks uh, or had them ride their swords or, you know, made some other silly object and or just saddles, right, where they just pull the saddles up to their legs or something. And they didn't. They said, you know what? It's, it's just funnier to have nothing. And they just put their hands in front of them um, in this kind of silly manner. And that's what they do. This is this is how we ride horses here. You know? <laughs> it's just uh just a brilliant touch to lean a hundred percent into what you're working with. And yeah, I, I'm in awe because John Cleese is still at it. He's still writing and creating, he's still, you know, doing comedy. Uh and this movie came out, you know, well before I was born. And Yet here he is. He's an institution unto himself. Um, he's just still out there talking about comedy in ways that you wouldn't expect because, uh, I think he's, he's looking around the landscape and saying comedy's gotten too safe we've, we've got, we've lost the ability to put an edge on it and to say things um, that might ruffle feathers, uh, but do it in a way that's in good faith. Like there's bad faith comedy where uh, you say things that people are afraid to say, and you do it in a way that you're trying to offend, as opposed to trying to get at some more interesting bit of cultural and social commentary. Um, And there's still that going on for sure. Uh, But I, I love that he's still out there, he's still creating, he's still, you know, trying to push the boundaries and in a thoughtful way. Uh yeah, this this is uh this is a Titan of a film, then God does it hold up uh perfectly, really, because luckily, you know, this this was made in a time where cinematography, you know, probably had its ups and downs, probably more downs from a modern, you know, lens perspective. Yet because of the type of comedy they're going after it doesn't need to be anything else it can still be like this really janky looking thing and it's just amazing oh yeah
2: so that was a great that was a great point by the way i was literally thinking about that two days ago of of just comedy in general and how you have you have people who you have the types of comics who who say i need to be able to say anything i want and you need to be able to call it to, to be okay or, or just deal with it because it's comedy and a joke. And I hate that. I'm not saying that you can be able to – you should be able, you shouldn't be able to say anything. You should. <clears throat> you should. But some things, you know, some things I know you're telling that joke because you know people are going to respond negatively to it. And then you can say it's a joke. And I, I, I hate that kind of stuff. That's cheap comedy to me. And I feel, I feel like that's out there. That's out there a lot, but, but it's, it's, and that's easy to do. What's hard to do is tell a, a joke about a difficult topic, but like you said, Wes, not, not try to be divisive about it. You know, like there, there's probably humor in almost anything. But I say almost anything because there are some things that are just not funny to anyone and and are only said to get a rise out of people. And I think that this this is probably a really interesting thing when it was made because it was making fun of the of all of the stuff in that same region. Right. So there are. Well, there was a queen. You know, there there's a monarchy in Britain. Right. Still is has been for thousands of years. Right. Hundred. I don't know. I don't even know. So let's make fun of all of that. And there's probably some people that maybe maybe didn't like that, you know, but it was told in a way that was not it was tried to joke in a way that was not supposed to be be divisive. Just call out some things that I think that people think, you know, that they, they know people think are really weird or don't seem right and say, hey, this is weird and not right. And they just like poke at it a little bit. And that's that's why I love this kind of humor, because it's just it's just pokey. It's just identifying the the weird and not right and saying, hey, look at that. Oh, look at that, too. Oh, hey, let's go back to this and look at that. You know, and I that's that's great because it's yeah, it's not supposed to divide people. It's just supposed to make you say, oh, I did think about that. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't told anybody else I've thought about (laughs) that, but I did think about that. And that's, that is hilarious that they're calling that out in a film, you know?
3: I think that's like the testament to like comedy itself is like, that's what's comedy supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about poking holes into things that are too taboo to talk about. And I think that's, that is in a way can seem divisive, but it's actually probably supposed to bring people together if you're talking about something that person thinks is funny and that person doesn't think is funny or vice versa or whatever, it, I mean, nothing should be too holy to, to mock, you know, but no, I, but yeah, there's always tasteful ways to do everything obviously. But like, yeah, I feel like everything should get made fun of. Nothing should be above being made fun of. And if, if you can't find humor in that, then there's something wrong with you or that ideology. And that's why I think like stand-up comedy right now is just so brilliant. Cause they're kind of like on the front lines of that kind of stuff. Like they're not afraid, like it's dangerous to be a stand-up comedy. Like, I mean, you could get canceled or you could get all your funds taken away lose your job or whatever, but they're still out there being like, well, it's important and people need to make fun of shit. So we're going to do it.
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, going back to something you said at the beginning of the episode, Todd, uh, about Tarantino, um, there's been this kind of running conversation about him and his, Freedom to take risks. He's just he's gonna do what he has to do, and he's gonna honor whatever he's thinking about. And um, sometimes you know it's very on the line. But I think that's what also makes him exciting uh, to watch. Is like you don't know where he's going to go next, as opposed to someone like Spielberg. I was having this conversation with my roommate last night just about why Spielberg. For me, you know, in recent years, I like I still like his films. Like I'm not saying that I don't like what he's mostly been doing um but the the problem is the lack of risk like when you're only playing inside the safe zones uh it's it's really easy to go along and get along it's really hard to make your mark though how are you going to change anything how are you going to you know press an idea or challenge um a norm if you're only ever playing inside you know the the sandbox uh you have to mix it up and that's what makes Scorsese still relevant. That's what makes Tarantino still relevant. And Spielberg, you know, I'm, I'm, I really love his last film Fablemans because that is personal. He really took some risks as, as someone who just made, you know, a film that's very specifically a slice of my life. I'm like, I'm never doing that again. And for, and to see him immediately, you know, I, I made that film, I shot that film a few weeks ago and then within a few days went and watched the Fablemans and I'm like, bro, you did that for an entire movie, you know, you made about your life. That's Mm. another level of bold and risk-taking. I, I hope he continues to do. Um, but maybe you get to a certain point in your career, uh, where you're just like, it's not worth it. Um, I just want to enjoy, you know, telling stories and it doesn't have to be this, that, and the other, but, uh, I just think that's what makes certain people, you know, evergreen, uh, someone like Monty Python, who, you can still go back and watch anything they've done, and it's still really, really funny. Uh, because they're out there on a limb, even if it's you know not culturally significant, they're still taking real big risk with their jokes. And and you can easily see how a lot of these things may not land, um, but they're out there on the on the on the line, just saying, you know what? Fine, we're going to tell a whole you know joke about a dead bird and. Uh, it's just going to be what it is. And it's either funny or it's not, I don't know, but, uh, we're going to have a dead bird conversation and for, for like 10 minutes, (laughs) it's just gonna, and then they hit you in the face. You're like, I don't know what to make of this. Uh, yeah. So a lot of, a lot of respect for, you know, the, the whole Monty Python crew. And I never remember or, uh, realized that Terry Gilliam was part of this. Like I always think of him on his own terms. You know, I, I think of him mostly in terms of his endless odyssey of trying to create a Don Quixote movie that he finally got made, but it was just snake bitten for decades. Um, and I've always respected his just passion to keep going and saying, I don't care about curses or whatever stupid stuff. You know, I'm going to keep chasing this, this dream that I have. Um, but I also think of all, well, him in terms of his early comedies uh but specifically on you know like 12 monkeys is usually what i think of uh terry gilliam and so yeah um anyway what uh what are you going to recommend this week uh scott
3: well it's funny you said 12 monkeys because that was one of two that i was going to recommend because it's so brilliant and so different from any of the monty python stuff but it does have that weird quirkiness to it so that would be one but uh i guess like my other favorite Monty Python movie is the meaning of life, which is just like random different chapters of just all kinds of just random could be monotonous, normal life stuff, but they take it and put their little spin on it. And it's just hysterical um, whether it's death or whether it's being married to someone for 40 years or whatever, like like the whole like contraception thing of like the early Protestant Catholic era and, and, I don't know. It's, it's just, it's brilliant. Um, so yeah, the meaning of life. Um, speaking of Terry Gillum, who also, I mean, am not sure you're aware, but like, uh, so Terry Gillum was, was uh, Arthur's coconut guy. He was, <laughs> he was the old man. The all right, answer me these questions three. And he's also, he does all the animation. So he drew all that stuff.
1: Oh, That's Terry Gillum. Wow. I did not know that. Damn. I didn't either. Yeah. Directed it,
3: animated it, like starred multiple roles in it but you just never know because he's always like in either highly makeup or yeah he's all over the film as an actor as well but uh yeah he is just so ahead of his time He's he's brilliant but um yeah Yeah,
1: just threw that out there uh todd what do you got man
2: um i'm because it's christmas season i gotta recommend one of my favorite christmas movies um And some might be polarizing from some people. I don't know. But I love National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. It's just my favorite um, every year. And my kids love it, too. My son, in particular, I think two years ago, maybe three years ago when he was six, we watched it and he was rolling, like (laughs) just rolling. So if I can get my my six or seven year old to uh, to laugh at a film, especially that's not animated, it's going to have a special place in my heart. So. That's nice. what I'm gonna recommend: National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation.
1: Nice, yeah, we covered that uh, on episode 97. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, y'all can go listen to that one. I'm gonna recommend it's. Uh, it's really hard finding an analog to something like this movie. the The closest I got in modern times was Woody Allen's Midnight in Paris. It takes advantage of some of the absurdism um, and does it all with a straight face. And I really, I think that's my favorite. I'm not a huge Woody uh, Allen fan, Um, but that definitely does it for me. That's such a wonderful film with a lot of thoughts uh, and a lot of great performances. Yeah. So check that out and stay tuned for next week. We are going to see what Denzel's been up to um, and and see if he can teach us a thing or two on training day. And so uh, hopefully uh, we get a little bit better at the job, you know, by being trained up by Denzel. Um, And so uh, if you're enjoying the show, don't forget, drop us a review, subscribe, leave us a note, something you want us to talk about, kind of things you find interesting. Yeah. And if you want to leave a note on this episode, uh, you can do that at the com slash
2: Monty Python and the Holy Grail.
1: It's a really short URL.
2: Yeah, <laughs> maybe well, the longest one we've got. Yeah. <laughs> so our quote of the day is from the great John Cleese: "The most creative people have this childlike facility to play." Yeah, absolutely. The yes and right. The uh, uh, where you just you just play. You just go with whatever the other person across from you is is doing, and um, and you take it in a new way, and then you hand it off to somebody else, and you take it. They take it in another way, and it just keeps going around. I love it.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, and I. I It's really hard. I think sometimes for me to understand people who aren't as creative because most of my friends are, are highly creative people. And so I just kind of see that as the status quo. And and yet there are plenty of people who don't really get the creative angle that we do constantly. Like we do it in our, our downtime, right? We do it as the way we joke with each other. Um, the, the links sometimes that I'll go through for a bit, um, are, you know, dumb and it's, obvious to us that creativity is just being willing to yes. And, and to, to, to play in the sandbox and and discover something new, um, and to not be limited. And I get into some meetings with, uh, my, my producer, um, Ricky, and it's just, I, I always, I see him as a creative guy. Um, I don't think he sees himself as a creative guy. And sometimes that really does pop out, um, where I am over here, playing ethereally with ideas and he suddenly turns to taking them all too serious. Uh, So like we were, we were having a conversation yesterday, just working on, about ideas for a bunch of horror stories that we're we're working on, and I was like, "Yeah, let's just ideate for a while. We'll throw out ideas and we'll figure out what's doable later. Um, but for now, we just need to come up with ideas." And we're halfway through and throwing random ideas around, and he suddenly is like, "Well, yeah, I don't know that we can do, you know, X, Y, or Z," and uh, he's just starting, you know, the, the logistics. Blah blah blah. And I was like, "Man, we've been talking for like forty-five minutes." about random ideas and thoughts. And suddenly, you know, you think, how can we execute this? And we shouldn't be going. And I'm like, hey, man, just take a take a step back for a second. And let's, right now, we don't know what we can and can't do. Until we have the idea, we can't cut anything off. Everything's possible. Everything's permissible. Because um, the, the reality is right now, we're, we're working with a very short budget for the ideas that the client uh, wants us to do. But the thing is, we might have, uh, a second season. Right now, we're just talking about season one of like four horror films that we can do in VR. We don't want to cut off anything because these might be really good ideas for a season two that says, okay, now we have tripled the budget. Now, maybe instead of, you know, $200,000, maybe we have a million dollars to play with. We want ideas for that too. We want to be able to pitch them and say, hey, here's what we're going to do for this first run. But think about this for the second run. We can whatever, shoot a horror in space, whatever, right? It's just... Everything's possible. And it's taken me until recently to be like, okay, don't take everything he says uh, the wrong way, because sometimes he's 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 maybe not the most creative person in the way that I am um, in the way that you and I are. Um, And probably a lot of our listeners, he sometimes puts his engineering hat on a little too quickly. You know, there's been so many of these conversations where I'm just, you know, playing around and thinking esoterically about VR and reimagining yeah, your client's asking for this, but you know what the real problem with VR is? It's X, Y, Z. And he's like, well, I don't think we can fund a whole venture to, you know, reinvent VR. And I was like, man, we were, we were talking much bigger. Like your client is wanting a consultation about the state of VR. And that's all we're talking about is the state of VR. And like, I don't know what idea this is going to trigger. You just can't cut things off yet before you've had a chance to let them breathe and permeate and, then that's how you discover something new. You have to be willing to really play and really experiment and and to go places that don't feel obvious before you find something that's doable. Very obvious. Imagine if Monty Python uh, team was sitting around talking about what do we want to do for our first movie? Um, yeah, let's let's do something you know weird and crazy. Let's do a, a medieval piece. Hey, man, we don't have the money for that. Like, where are we going to get money for horses? <laughs> you know, obviously they didn't do that. They said, well, that's where the humor is. Like, we're not telling a drama. We're not making, you know, a Shakespearean, you know, star-crossed lover film. Uh, we're, we're making comedy. Like, that's where comedy is, is in the shortcomings. Yeah, I don't know. So whenever you think about John Cleese or this idea of being creative and, and childlike uh, play, uh, Scott, what does that make you think? Where does that take you?
3: No, yeah, I mean, that that. Just, I mean, that relates to me totally. Even like as music producer and engineering and um, creating music beds for artists or whatever, it's like, yeah, you have to be able to just be open to anything and be able to take advice from other people and be like, hey, what about this chord or what about that chord or what about this organ or you know, you just have to be a complete blank slate and be able to paint with all kinds of stuff. And um, as soon as you say like, oh, well, it has to be indie alternative rock. It's like, okay, well, you put yourself in that box and there's really nowhere else to go. Like, what if you wanted to add like some sort of like hip hop 808 drum beat to it, or you wanted to add like a string section? It's like, well, if you've already put your limitations into a genre, then you're never gonna, the song is only gonna be that. And, you know, you're, you're limiting what the song could potentially be, where it could go. And um, yeah, you, you can't do that. <laughs> it's just that's death to art, really, whether it's music, whether it's film like when I was writing that screenplay or sorry, the um, the play musical that I wrote years ago, um, you know, obviously we were trying to write it with the idea that this could be on like a small stage, but also at the same time, I'm like, well, what if it was like on Broadway? Who knows? Like, let's, let's write it how we want to see it. And then if it gets to that point, then you, then you tear down, you trim the fat, whatever. But it's like all that led to more creative things. And then that, sprouted out something else and this idea became something else and then all of a sudden you're like creating this story and this concept that's you know could potentially be way over budget but it you know most of the time it probably won't even get put on anyway so might as well make the story as cool as possible and just go from there and don't yeah just don't shackle yourself just because you think oh I might not have this budget or it's this genre so we can't stray from that genre you just gotta be open to everything
2: nice great point uh, yeah great point man scott thank you for joining us man thank you for giving me a reason to watch this film again
3: <laughs> thanks for inviting me uh, as soon as you as soon as you texted me he's like hey i th- we think we're doing monty python holy grail you want to do it i was like absolutely yes <laughs> of course i love that movie yeah.
2: well uh and it's good to see your face man it's been too yes. long it can't wait to be down i'm gonna be down there working with you end of january that's right yeah 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 January's busy. we're gonna be working on my record together um and i'm very very excited about that being in a room with you creatively because uh, I, I will say that that like like working with someone like scott is fantastic because there are no boundaries it just it just feels like you know when you try to box yourself in as an artist and you try to say well i'm i'm hearing this and it should be this or whatever you always need somebody to say well what if you know and And I think that you do that really well. So I'm really excited to work with you Uh, and excited for the opportunities that you've had there at Orb. It's it's just been fantastic to watch you grow and see all the music that you're making come out. And uh, it's just great. So thanks for joining us, man. My pleasure. And thank you for joining us and listening. Uh, We appreciate it. Please make sure to subscribe, review us anywhere that you get your podcasts. And let us know if there's a film that you'd like to see us uh, cover. We'd love to hear from you and we'd love to hear what you think. Uh, Until next time, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. I'm Scott. Go watch some movies.